You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back to the program, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan, where it's currently the 12th day of December 2012. And I almost stuttered over the date there because I can scarcely believe that the year is almost over, but almost over it is. And another year is growing long in the tooth with another new year ready to take its place. And it's hard to believe that the year has passed so quickly. But there you go, a blink of an eye, and it's almost over. So tonight on the program, we're going to try something completely different. Uh, tonight we're going to be actually talking about stories that I do not have an easy or a nice way of pigeonholing or fitting into any particular category or coming to any final conclusions about. Tonight we're going to open up just some of those weird stories that accrue from time to time over the years and start to add up to things that just make you go, hmm. And on that note, I've, well, over the years, I've collected quite a few stories that are interesting in that way, thought-provoking, sometimes just make you scratch your head and wonder what's going on. And in fact, it was one of those types of stories that was the first story that I ever actually bothered to save to my hard drive of my computer, because I thought it was just such a strange news story that I was not sure I'd ever see it again, or if I searched for it, if I'd ever be able to find it again. So I wanted to make sure that I had that story. And that was back in December of 2006, before the Corbett Report was even a twinkle in my eye. And I decided to save a story that I saw on BBC News that was just too weird to pass up, and uh, I've got it saved to this day. It's uh, still up there on BBC News, so I'll throw the link in for the show notes uh, for today's episode. It's called Japanese Man in Mystery Survival. Quote, a Japanese man has survived for 24 days in cold weather and without food and water by falling into a state of hibernation, his doctor has said. Mitsutaka Uchikoshi, 35, went missing on the 7th of October after going with friends to climb Mount Rocco in western Japan. He had almost no pulse, his organs had shut down, and his body temperature dropped to 22 degrees Celsius, that's 71 degrees Fahrenheit, when he was found. Medics say they are still puzzled how he survived, because his metabolism was apparently almost at a standstill. Mr. Uchikoshi is believed to have tripped and lost consciousness after leaving his party to descend from the mountain on his own. I lay down in a grassy area, which felt good in the sunshine, and eventually I fell asleep, Mr. Uchikoshi told reporters at a news conference at a hotel in Kobe, at a hospital in Kobe, where he was being treated. That's the last thing I remember, he said. Well, the story goes on from there, but suffice it to say, there is no very inter- no uh, pat answer for the doctors. Basically, their hypothesis is that Mr. Ichikoshi just fell into a coma, fell into a state of hibernation, not just a coma. His, his internal organs actually shut down and his body temperature dropped. So he was actually in a state of hibernation and was able to survive over three weeks without any food or water in that state. Uh, just a bizarre little story, and it was bizarre enough to certainly capture my attention back in the day and to actually get me saving articles, which is a good thing, because as I always say, since we don't know how long we have the Internet in the free and open form that we have it today, 
it's always a good idea to be saving articles to your hard drive, but uh, this is the one that actually kicked me into action and got me, well, thinking about some of these bizarre stories that come up from time to time. So tonight on the program, we're going to take a look at just some of the, the bizarre stories out there, some of the weird stories that come up from time to time that do make you scratch your head and wonder what's going on. And we have some stories from the world of science. We have some stories about the royal family and their goings-on, and we have some stories about predictive programming and the Hollywood uh, indoctrination that, unfortunately, we've all been steeped in for much of our lives. So if there are any weird stories that you would like to get in on in tonight's episode, we will open up the phone lines, 1-800-313-9443. That's 1-800-313-9443. We'll get you up and on the air. So sit right back, stay tuned. We'll be back after these messages. Sick of this damn noise, the paranoid android Poised at the edge of the precipice Sanity is gradually becoming my nemesis Like Glenn Beck was my therapist Yes, it sounds pebbleist Governments and terrorists Evidently similar, we've all got our enemies Powers leave you penniless Selling a show Natural born predators with venomous thoughts Leaving men in the morgues Especially men that be peddling wars Make them backtrack fast Alright friends, welcome back to the program Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio Once again, I'm your host as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. That's C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. You can go there for all the latest news, information, commentary, videos, articles, podcasts, and even to sign up for the weekly newsletter if you so desire. So it is all there available at CorbettReport.com. And I will uh, apologize for not appearing live on the radio program last night, but I have been behind all week, and I was catching up on actually getting my podcast episode released. So if you haven't checked it out yet, episode 250 of the Corbett Report podcast is now available up there on the website. It's the first new podcast episode since the end of October, so it's been a long time coming, but I think it's a particularly interesting one, taking a look at PLF-101, that's Polish Air Force 101, that crashed in uh, in Smolensk in southwest Russia on April 10th, 2010, and some of the strange details surrounding that crash. But speaking of strangeness, that's what we're all about tonight. We're going to be talking about some bizarre, strange, and surprising news and information and uh, stories from around the world. And we're going to start off in the realm of science and some, well, weird scientific discoveries. And uh, why not start off with something, well, that is positive, I suppose, but sounds very strange no matter how you slice it. And I just saw this actually earlier today from Yahoo Health, so we'll highlight it here. The HIV virus, a possible cure for leukemia. Quote, in April 2012, 7-year-old Emily Emma Whitehead was in the fight of her life following her second relapse of acute lymphoblastic or lymphocytic leukemia, ALL. The then 6-year-old parent, the then 6-year-old's parents and doctors turned to an unlikely source to save the young girl's life, the HIV virus. Emma, diagnosed with ALL in 2010, underwent an experimental procedure involving a disabled form of HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, after two unsuccessful courses of chemotherapy failed to achieve sustained remission. The treatment pioneered at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is similar to therapies being developed at other cancer centers around the U.S. Emma is one of a handful of patients with advanced leukemia to receive the CTO019 therapy, formerly called the 
CART-19 therapy, an experimental treatment that involves doctors reprogramming a person's T-cells, a type of white blood cell that plays a key role in the immune system, to search out and kill cancer cells. The experimental technique relies on help from a disabled form of HIV because the virus is adept at carrying genetic material into T-cells so they're able to kill off cancer cells. Those genetically altered T-cells go to work attracting cells in the body that play a role in the development of leukemia. It's important to note that the T-cells are removed from the patient before being bioengineered with the HIV virus. The patient is not injected with the virus. This treatment differs from chemotherapy, a drug that is out of the most common treatments of leukemia, which kills off all fast-growing cells in the body. End quote. Well, again, you can go and continue reading about that treatment, and there's uh, more information there on that page, so that will be linked up in the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com. But it just goes to show what a weird and wacky scientific world we live in, where even some of the uh, deadliest diseases and, and scourges and plagues and harbingers of doom and death can be transformed via science into things that can actually help the, uh, uh, the doctors deliver their amazing treatments. And, of course, we can all have our reservations about the medical industrial complex and the way that uh, allopathy is used to, um, to, to solve problems that, in fact, are created in a lot of cases by well, lifestyles and uh, pro- uh, choices that are fed to us from the moment of our birth, but that's a whole other topic. Suffice it to say, it is interesting to see these types of stories and the amazing things that can be done with science these days, and yet another indication actually comes from Blacklisted News by, by way of the Daily Mail. The smart tattoo with sensors that can measure how tired you are. This story says, quote, medical sensors concealed within temporary tattoos could be used by coaches to fine-tune their athletes' training, a new study claims. Researchers at the University of Toronto Scarborough invented the sensor, which comes in a thin, flexible transfer adorned with a cheerful, smiley face design. We wanted a design that could conceal the electrodes, said Vinci Hung, a PhD candidate in the university's Department of Physical and Environmental Sciences, who was part of the team. The new tattoo-based solid-contact ion-selective electrode is made using standard screen-printing techniques and commercially available transfer tattoo paper. End quote. The story goes on from there, but yes, there are now tattoos that can actually tell you how tired you are. That's an amazing little development. And if this is starting to get a little bit uncomfortable, well, we could actually get even more uncomfortable with stories like this one from UC Berkeley from last year, Scientists use brain imaging to reveal the movies in our minds. Quote, imagine tapping into the mind of a coma patient or watching one, one's own dream on YouTube. With a cutting-edge blend of brain imaging and computer simulation, scientists at the University of California, Berkeley, are bringing these futuristic scenarios within reach. Using functional magnetic resonance imaging and com- computational models, UC Berkeley researchers have succeeded in decoding and reconstructing people's dynamic visual experiences, in this case, watching Hollywood movie trailers. As yet, the technology can only reconstruct movie clips people have already viewed. However, the breakthrough paves the way for reproducing the movies inside our heads that no one else sees, such as dreams and memories, according to researchers. End quote. Again, there's a lot more information at that UC Berkeley link that I'll put in the show notes. 
But yes, that uh, should at least begin sending the shivers of discomfort down your spine if you're paying attention at all to this type of mind-reading technology that's literally being worked on right now. And we can imagine who are the people who are funding this type of technology and who have the most to gain from its presence. And I am always a bit skeptical of these types of stories and the touted claims uh, of the researchers in studies like this, because obviously they want to try to squeeze as much funding money out of the uh, the people um, who are funding this that they can, and they want to maybe exaggerate some of the more amazing possible breakthroughs of this. And then I think on the other side, things like, uh, hey, the Department of Homeland Security would have great reason for pump, uh, pumping up and hyping up this type of technology because they would be able to say, well, now we have mind-reading scanners and we can actually see what you're thinking. And this this machine shows us that you're thinking about terrorism. You must be a terrorist. So I think this has the uh, dual ability to not only be quack pottery, but also to be something that could be used to actually part of the uh, the police state. And it will be, unfortunately, very much like a, a 1984 scenario where people, once they're told, well, the machine says you're a terrorist, and uh, a lot of people will just internalize that as part of the, the double think that we all go along with. Well, if this machine says it, it must be true. Well, if you can see where the tendency of this is leading to an uncomfortable picture of a future in which technologies can be of the most amazing and life-saving sorts can be imagined right alongside with technologies of the most invasive and personally, well, creepy uh, sort. Well, this is unfortunately the type of picture that's being painted by this these types of technological advances that are coming at a faster and faster pace as we start heading towards that divide known as the singularity, where the machines basically start producing themselves. And until we reach that point, we still have to face the reality of a future in which technology really creates a type of almost, well, almost speciation within the human species itself. And I don't go out on a limb to say this. This comes from another one of those really bizarre stories that I've pointed to a few times over the course of the Corbett Report. And I'll point out here once again, because it's just so weird. But again, it comes from mainstream news, as mainstream as you can get, the good old BBC, which had a story again back in 2006, this time in October of 2006. It ran under the headline, Human Species may split in two. And it says human species, uh, humanity may split into two subspecies in 100,000 years time, as predicted by H.G. Wells, an expert has said. Evolutionary theorist Oliver Curry of the London School of Economics expects a genetic upper class and a dim-witted underclass to emerge. The human race would peak in the year 3000, he said, before a decline due to dependence on technology. People would become choosier about their sexual partners, causing humanity to divide into subspecies, he added. The descendants of the genetic upper class would be tall, slim, healthy, attractive, intelligent, and creative, and a far cry from the underclass humans who would have evolved into dim-witted, ugly, squat, goblin-like creatures, end quote. (laughs) Well, that is quite a description coming from the BBC, but again, you have to actually see this story to believe it, because within the story, it actually has a picture, an artist rendering, I suppose, of this genetic upper and underclass envisioned by Dr. Curry of the London School of Economics that actually depicts this large, tall, healthy, uh, of course, white uh, 
genetic upper class uh, next to this squat goblin-like creature that is envisioned to come out of this, well, uh, centuries and centuries of uh, the divide in the human species between the haves and haves nots, have-nots. And since, uh, well, we are moving into that age where soon it will be not only the have and have-nots in terms of monetary wealth, but the have and have-nots in terms of accessibility to genetic upgrades and the like, I imagine it probably would not be 1,000 years if things continue on the same rate before the human species does start to split into that upper and under class. I imagine it would be much, much sooner as unfortunately the technologies to really start to affect that split are coming at a frantic pace. All right, friends, let's take a breather from some of this weirdness and let's take a a short break. When we come back, we'll continue talking about some of these stories that make you go, hmm. And once again, the phone lines are open tonight. If you have any stories that you'd like to pitch in on tonight's conversation, 1-800-313-9443. We'll be back after this. in Afghanistan, Vietnamese in Vietnam, Iraqis in Iraqi land, we bombed them all. Welcome back to the program, friends. Welcome back to Forever Report Radio. As tonight on the program, we take a look at stories that make you go, hmm. And it's time for some royal weirdness, because the royal family is weird in and of itself. I don't think you even need to dig very deeply to find some weirdness in the royal family. But, uh, of course, talking about the, the Royal House of Windsor, or should I say the Saxe-Coburg-Gotha imposters to the throne who uh, have taken over England. But uh, let's not get into that ancient history. Let's talk about some more recent events. Of course, I'm sure everyone in the entire world has heard about the radio DJ hoax that uh, was perpetrated just last week when some radio hosts in Australia tried to fooled the, uh, the hospital staff where uh, Princess uh, Kate was staying by basically pretending to be uh, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip and calling the, the hospital and trying to talk to the nurse, etc. And uh, I'm sure everyone has heard of that story and the radio host's weepy apology and all of that uh, drama and rigmarole. But I, I don't know about anyone else out there, but I found it particularly interesting when the nurse who took the call ended up dead and it was... Immediately, of course, a suicide. Uh, well, now they are saying that there was a suicide note that was left. It's There's a story out, it's uh, from the Daily Mail, but it's republished by WND. The nurse who apparently took her own life after she was duped by a hoax call made to the hospital treating the Duchess of Cambridge left a suicide note for her family. It was revealed today. The content of the note written by Jacinta uh, Saldana is unknown, but it's understood to have been addressed to her family, according to sources. A post-mortem examination on the 46-year-old nurse has begun today. And that does raise the question, which I've never really seen addressed anywhere, is how how exactly did she die? And how do we know that this was a suicide? Again, I'm not raising any conspiracy theories here because I don't, I honestly don't know. I haven't seen that addressed absolutely anywhere. And uh, still, the post-mortem hasn't even been done. So... It's interesting to watch the development of this story and this complete silence of the media on how we know any of the details about this death other than what we've been told to accept. But getting into some of the royal weirdness, and I'm not just talking about things like the groom of the stool, if you know what I'm talking about, and if you don't, check the show notes. You can look up all of the uh, the weirdness associated with that. 
But here's some other things that have cropped up recently. Of course, Kate is now pregnant, as the entire world knows. But now there's speculation about what if it's twins? Because apparently some twins do run in the royal family, and it seems like now people are speculating. What if it is twins? Well, that could happen. And uh, and here's just part of the bizarreness of the idea of a royal family itself, this uh, 21st century complete anachronism that makes you realize that, oh, maybe the world doesn't actually work the way that we're told it does, and maybe these people are more than just really walking, talking statues who are designed to wave and smile to the crowd. Maybe they actually do wield power in this day and age behind the scenes. Well, at any rate, the fact that they survive uh, into the 21st century is sort of weird in and of itself. But in the event of twins, who ends up becoming the next in line for the throne? Because obviously, if it's a boy or a girl, that will be the next after William himself to be in line for the throne. So what would, in fact, be the line of succession? Well, of course, it depends which of the twins comes out first. But then now there's in this Daily Beast article called Kate Middleton, Family Patterns Suggest It Could Be Twins. They actually are speculating, well, what if it's a cesarean section? Does that mean that the doctor who is performing the C-section will, in effect, choose the line of succession for the British royal throne by choosing which of the babies comes out first? And apparently that is pretty much the way it'll work. It is a bizarre series of events all around, but it does lead to some other bizarreness surrounding the royals. In fact, things that are even further out there, including the fact, I I never knew this, but I I thought it was kind of interesting, Catherine, Duchess of Cambridge, a.k.a. Princess Kate, uh, was born on January 9th, 1982, which happened to be a, a lunar eclipse on January 9th. And his Royal Highness Prince William happened to be born on June 21st, which was the solar equinox of uh, 1982. So we have the lunar eclipse marrying the solar equinox on April 29th, which is a a cult high holiday in and of itself. So, again, some bizarreness in that regard, but uh, a lot of it goes into some of that mysticism and occultism that's difficult to nail down. But for some more things that will definitely make you go, hmm, I would direct people to the always excellent VigilantCitizen.com, which had an interesting article about Princess Diana and her death and memorial back in April of 2009. We don't have time to go through the whole thing, but I just wanted to point out some of the interesting things on this uh, in this article, including some interesting facts about the Ponta Dalma Tunnel, where she was actually killed. It says here in this article, quote, As you might know, Princess Diana died in a limousine accident inside the Pont d'Alma tunnel in Paris. Her vehicle was supposedly chased by paparazzi who caused the world-class chauffeur to lose control due to his inebriated state after consuming alcohol. We can argue for days about the theories concerning these events, but this is not the purpose of the article. The truth lies in the symbols placed on purpose for the initiates to recognize. One of them is the actual site where Diana lost her life, the Pont d'Alma tunnel. The city of Paris was built by the Merovingians, a medieval dynasty which ruled France for numerous generations. Before converting to Christianity, the Merovingian religion was a mysterious brand of paganism. The Pont d'Alma tunnel was a sacred site dedicated to the moon goddess Diana, where they used to practice ritual sacrifices. During those ceremonies, it was of an utmost importance that the sacrificed victim died inside the underground temple. 
Well, that's that story again. Very fascinating. It goes on from there. Let's take a short break, and we'll pick things up on the other side. One day in Manhattan, clear as could be, till the planes hit the buildings and changed history. They stood for an hour. Once the damage. Well, stories that make you go, hmm, stories that are just, well. Hit that weirdness part of the uh, spectrum that's difficult to pigeonhole, and we've hit through, we've gone through quite a few of them already today. But let's let's take a look at everybody's favorite subject: predictive programming. That uh, that bizarre nexus of the Hollywood entertainment vehicle and reality, and how those things nexus together, and how certain elements of certain stories may or may not be implanted to get people uh, thinking in certain directions. And this is the type of subject that, among some people, might cause eye rolls, etc., because how could that possibly function? But uh, at the very least, there are certain technological bases on which uh, the media that we consume physically affects us, affects our physiology. And we've all heard in vague detail discussions about flicker rates of televisions, etc., causing different physiological effects. But just, just because we often talk about them in vague ways does not mean that they are not actually documentable. And just a hint of that comes from a very recent story of a brand new movie that I'm sure people are rushing out to speak, is to see as I speak, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey which apparently was shot by director Peter Jackson in 48 frames per second camera speed, as opposed to the traditional 24 frames per second. And apparently this makes the 3D effect smoother and makes the images almost hyper-realistic. But because the frame rate is so much uh, faster, there are so many more frames... Apparently, this requires the eye to sweep up and down much more rapidly during the actual display of uh, close-ups, etc., that it leads to eye eye strain, headaches, and queasiness. And so now we have this from the heraldsun.com.au. Hobbit's visual effects leave some fans feeling sick. And basically, this just goes on to detail how many of the viewers who have seen this in the 48 frames per second version are coming away actually feeling physically nauseous from having watched this. So it is just another indication of the effects that even things that are subconscious that we can't actually realize or recognize on a conscious level can have that physiological effect. And it, it's, uh, it's bizarre, but it, uh, it's true and documentable. And not only, of course, from The Hobbit, but from one of the most famous examples, which happened back uh, 15 years ago now, back in 1997. In fact, December 16th, 1997, almost exactly 15 years ago, there was an episode of the children's animated television series Pokemon, which aired in Japan. And this episode was called Electric Soldier Porygon, which I suppose is Japanese for polygon. And it, well, I'll read a little bit from a Kotaku.com article about that episode. It's called uh, The Banned Pokemon Episode That Gave Children Seizures. And it says, The episode called Electric Soldier Porygon is now part of Pokemon folklore. Centering around the adventures of Ash and his friends as they travel inside a Pokeball Pokeball transmitter machine, its story and premise are innocent enough. The machine is broken and the kids embark on an adorable little cyberspace adventure to fix it. What caused all the problems were the animation techniques employed in the episode. There comes a point around 20 minutes into the show when Pikachu uses his lightning attack to blow up some missiles. 
Because these are virtual missiles, and Pikachu is currently residing in Pokemon's version of cyberspace, a regular explosion just wouldn't look right. So the animators used a rapidly strobing technique that flashed red and blue lights on the screen to make the explosion look virtual, like something you'd see in Tron or the Lawnmower Man. And then all hell broke loose. Straight away, children across Japan were struck down with various ailments. Some kids passed out or experienced blurred vision. Others felt dizzy or nauseous. In extreme cases, some even experienced seizures and cases of temporary blindness. While the exact number of children legitimately affected by the show will never be known, in total 685 kids were put in ambulances suffering some kind of medical problem after watching the show. While most made speedy recoveries, some within minutes after the show's conclusion, a small number were diagnosed with epilepsy, which had been triggered by the rapidly blinking display, end quote. So once again, absolutely true that there are physiological effects from various media that we consume, and guess who's interested in that type of technology? I'll give you three guesses, and you'll only need one of them. This comes from theweek.com. The Army's conceptual seizure gun inspired by Pokemon. <laughs> Quote, The military has no shortage of experimental weapons at its disposal from the frighteningly destructive power of its railgun to the crippling effects of its pain ray. And according to secret Army documents acquired by Wired, the Pentagon in 1998 was interested in developing a non-lethal weapon capable of inducing seizures in enemy targets. Amazingly, says Spencer Ackerman at Wired, it was an idea inspired by a Pokemon episode. End quote. So yes, it doesn't take the Pentagon very long to get around to weaponizing basically anything that can be used, even if it's something that in fact originated from a children's cartoon that caused children to fall into epileptic seizures. But I suppose we should not be surprised by any of that. All right, well, we have more on that predictive programming front. But before we get into that, we have a caller on the line. So let's go to Earl in Seattle. Earl, thank you for holding on the line. And what's on your mind tonight? Hi, James. Thanks for taking my call, and thanks for all you do. Uh, Long-time supporter and first-time caller. I wanted to give you something that's sort of to make you go, hmm, but in a good way, if you don't mind a curveball. I love so, a curveball. All right, cool. So maybe maybe we can all enjoy this. You're familiar with John Taylor Gatto and the stroke that he had, a couple of strokes actually. But I just got an update in the Tragedy and Hope community from Lisa, and I just want to read you this quick note she sent here for everybody to, to warm their hearts with. Rich, Kevin Cole, and Lisa traveled into the city yesterday and brought John to his first dentist appointment. This was the first trip outside in many months, and when he got outside, he smiled and said, Hello, world. John's home health aide, Tanya, came with them to gently and carefully lift John in and out of the wheelchairs and in and out of the Jeep so he could get him up to the office, which was only a short drive from his apartment in the Upper West Side. Once there, he had a consultation with the dentist, then x-rays and first impressions taken for his dentures. We're told that within three or four more appointments, John will go home with some new choppers and a beautiful smile. And even though the excursion took a lot out of him, he was very grateful, in good spirits, and had enough energy left to give them a history lesson on the neighborhood as they passed on his way home. And he did send thanks to everybody who's donated and helped out, that he really appreciates the Good Samaritans out there. And he hates to be a burden on anybody, but he's really appreciative. 
And all I can well, say in response to that is he he's done so much with all of his work and with you know uh, Richard's work with the UHL uh, the history lesson. Um, I've learned so much from that series and so much from John's work that I don't think he can ever be a burden to anybody. Absolutely not. No, that, that is excellent to hear. And for people who don't know, uh, certainly if you've never heard of John Taylor Gatto, just uh, startpage.com his name and, and find out more about the work that he's done over the years exposing the, the truth about the education system. And for people who are really interested, there is, of course, the Ultimate History Lesson, which is available on YouTube for free, or you can get the DVD or Blu-rays. And it's a five-hour in-depth uh, interview that was conducted last year by the Tragedy and Hope uh, members, including Richard Grove and others. And they managed to get that on tape shortly before he had his stroke. And, of course, his uh, his health has really uh, taken a, a turn for the worse over the last year. So the uh, the Tragedy and Hope community has been helping him out in that regard. And I hope people will uh, will help out in that, that there's ways to pitch in at Tragedy and Hope. If you listen to the Peace Revolution podcast, they talk about that sometimes. So that is a great uh, story, and it is another sign of the uh, way people can pull together for someone who has given so much of his life to help educate others. And uh, and it's the very least people can do, because certainly John Taylor Ghetto is not a rich man, and uh, he has not dedicated his life to making money. He's uh, dedicated his life to expanding people's minds and their conception of what education is so uh carl uh, earl that is an excellent story thank you so much for sharing that all right thank you james take care of yourself all right you too well that is good to hear and it is good to get a nice positive story uh now and then so my hat's off to earl for injecting a little bit of uh, happiness into today's episode and a nice positive story again i hope people will check out more about that at the tragedy and hope community but we also have lee in wyoming on the line so let's uh, switch over to lee lee thanks for joining us tonight Thanks. On an opening note, I'd like to say John Taylor Gatto is one of my heroes also. He was instrumental in us deciding to homeschool our children. He's a man that I love and I've never met, but I've read his works and he's influenced me greatly. Well, that's excellent. How many children do you have? Thirteen. Thirteen? <laughs> Thirteen. Wow. 20, Twenty-eight down to eight. So I've got, got a whole range and we're, we've homeschooled or are homeschooling all of them. That's incredible. I'm sure you have um, quite a few stories about that as well. <laughs> oh, I do. Um, getting to something even stranger, speaking about strange stories, I don't know if you read the article the other day of the the UFO seen at night over Los Angeles. And I think the, the strange part of the story isn't that people saw lights at night in the sky. Um, the strange part of the story is the news is plastered with... Um, Homeland Security saying that they've given, you know, they're giving 3,000, there's going to be 3,000 drones flying around and we've seen blimps over cities and, uh, they're, and drones are flying everywhere and they're saying they're flying everywhere and the military's admitted that they test their, their secret spy planes and stuff at these Air Force bases and yet the public sees lights hovering at night and they think it's a ufo and maybe this goes back to your predictive programming but i think the the strange thing is the strange disconnect people have between fantasy and reality well you're exactly right about that and of course ufo just means unidentified flying object so certainly those lights in the sky are ufos but why do we yeah. always think little green men from mars i mean obviously that has to do with the way we've been programmed and uh, and uh, we see this in the media. I remember a few years ago, it was 
Larry King was showing some pictures of something up in the sky, and he was speculating it could it be aliens, etc. And of course, it turned out to be a Homeland Security blimp. But they 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 never really retract those stories. They never go back to them. They just put that out there and and sort of get people whipped up into a frenzy about it. And and why do you think that is? Of course, it's to distract people from what's really happening and what they're really implementing. So that was that's my word story of the week, James. Thanks a lot. Well, I appreciate it, Lee, and keep up all the great work that you're doing there on uh, on Twitter and uh, and everywhere else besides <laughs> raising 13 children. That's uh, quite a task. All right, let's let's move along with some more on the predictive programming note because again, it just it gets weirder and weirder the more you look into it. And I wanted to put some of this out on the table, including uh, one of the things that I think is just the most blatant of all the things I've seen. I've seen a lot of references to occult rituals and things taking place you know, on TV and in public and in movies and things like this. But I think the absolute most blatant for me comes from the 2009 VMAs, the MTV Video Music Awards, where, uh, again, VigilantCitizen.com had an excellent breakdown that I'll link to in the show notes. And uh, the part that I think was particularly blatant, I mean, there's just no other explanation for it, is Pink's Masonic Initiation. So the pop singer Pink appeared on stage wearing, uh, well, what, what do you even call this? It's a type of... I guess uh, a, a spangled lycra suit of some sort, but uh, one uh, her left breast is exposed with a little pink heart covering the important bits, and uh, her left pant leg is a checkerboard design. She's wearing a blindfold and being led out uh, on stage with some sort of device attached to her. And this is, I mean, you have to see the picture to understand it, but this is the Masonic initiation ritual where the person exposes their left breast. They have one of their pant legs rolled up. They're, they're there in the Masonic Lodge with its checkerboard uh, floor, and they're led around the block blindfolded as part of their initiation. And it is just so blatant that this is exactly, I mean, to a T, exactly what Pink is doing here that... Again, anyone who says that that is, oh, that's just coincidence. She just appeared that way. That's just a, you know, a costume is obviously clearly off their rocker. But reading some of the text from this part of the article, uh, again, up on VigilantCitizen.com, it says, there is no way a Mason could watch this uh, Pink's performance without recalling his initiation into the first degree. Here's a description by Mark Stavish. The candidate for initiation is stripped of all material possessions and dressed in a strange and peculiar garb. This includes a blindfold and a length of rope called a cable toe. He continues, The blindfold used represents secrecy, darkness, and ignorance, as well as trust. The candidate is led into the lodge room for initiation, but is not as able is not able to see what is happening. He is bound about the waist and arm with the cable toe. Pink is blindfolded and bound with ropes. Her costume exposes her left breast, as is the case with Sonic Initiates. Instead of having her left leg exposed, Pink's costume bears a diamond pattern, which is very reminiscent of the floors in Masonic lodges. End quote. Again, you probably need to see the pictures to really understand this, but it is so blatant, I don't think there's really any question about it. Another bit of predictive programming weirdness I wanted to point out comes from the wonderful land of Disney, and of course I say that sarcastically, as anyone who has uh, even vaguely scratch the surface of Disney productions. No, they are very much a mass media programming tool for the youth. And we've talked about that a little bit with guests on this program like uh, Lennon Honor and others. 
But uh, I wanted to get into just one of the bits of weirdness from Disneyland that people may or may not know about, uh, it being Club 33 in the New Orleans Square section of Disneyland, where uh, there's a club, a mysterious and members-only club on Royal Street Street called Club 33. And why on earth would they just randomly choose that 33 number? Does it have anything to do with Freemasonry? Oh, no, of course not. Well, at least not according to the unofficial homepage of Disneyland Club 33 at DisneylandClub33.com, which gives both the official Disney explanation, as my doorbell rings, and the unofficial explanation for why this club is called Club 33. The official explanation, it says, if you speak with a Disney executive or cast member, the name was derived based solely upon the address on Royal Street. Occam's Razor dictates that of the two competing theories, this explanation is the simplest and therefore the preferable. Which, of course, is always an infallible way of arriving at truth, right? Well, the unofficial explanation is that uh, the... Club 33 derives its name from the 33 lessees of Disneyland from 1966-67 when the club first opened. And if you go and count how many lessees there were at the time, it was 33. And apparently this is sort of the the unofficial explanation that is unofficially given out. Oh, well, this is why it was Club 33, because there were 33 corporate lessees of Disneyland, including such fine, upstanding companies as Monsanto, Pepsi-Cola, Goodyear, Coca-Cola, Fritos, Kodak, Bank of America, Bell Telephone, uh, Western Printing, uh, United Airlines, Timex, etc., etc., uh, it, you can go and actually take a look at the corporate members for yourself, but it just so happens there were 33 of them, and that's why it's Club 33. It has nothing to do with the 33 degrees of Freemasonry. Honest. Just trust them on that one. At any rate, more, a little bit more weirdness on the other side, and we'll wrap things up after these messages. Bunker busters, daisy cutters, cruise missiles B-52s, we bombed them all. For their prosperity, their freedom and democracy. Turn it up! I want my bail out money. Keep the bills coming. Sweet green cash just dripping like honey. I'm a new kind of thug with the Washington buzz. Cause dealing debt pays better than dealing drugs. What if this will happen when they double the money supply? A fallen dollar makes it harder for you to survive. And take those billions and trillions and give it to their own kind. Great friends, welcome back. We are here in the final minutes of tonight's edition of Corporate Report Radio. Tonight we're talking about things that make you go, hmm, things that I don't necessarily definitively claim to have all of the dots connected and all of the pieces lined up to make uh, one giant puzzle, but things that generally do leave you scratching your head. And on the note of predictive programming, where would an, uh, a talk about predictive programming and weirdness be without some talk about 9-11 and predictive programming? And, of course, we can point to such things as the album cover for The Coup uh, Party Music, which uh, was due to be released on September 11, 2001, and which featured the two band members on the front cover blowing up the World Trade Center by remote control while uh, you know, conducting a symphony or whatever that's supposed to represent. Just one of those bizarre coincidences, I suppose, that happens. And really, honestly, I don't think that they were 
necessarily involved in the plot of 9-11 or knew anything about it. And there's a lot of destructive imagery of the World Trade Centers that have been around for uh, many, many decades. And I don't think that's necessarily because they were all in on the plot. I think it was just part of a meme that has been around for a long time. But again, just part of that weirdness. We'd also point to uh, Neo in The Matrix. His passport expires on 9-11-2001. Again, just one of those interesting coincidences, I suppose. But there are those people who put those interesting bits and pieces of information together in mind-blowing pieces of media that I would wholeheartedly suggest people check out. I wanted to play you a clip from one that I've always found particularly fascinating called the 9-11 Stargate, but we're almost out of time, so let's just listen to a quick preview, just the first minute or two of this video. Welcome to the brave new world order. What I try and do at my blog is something I call synchromysticism. I describe it as the art of finding meaningful coincidence in the seemingly mundane with mystical or esoteric significance. This short video will try and explain this process. For example, is this merely an innocent, mundane movie poster, or perhaps a veiled message? Look at the negative space. Is there something hidden here? Now we can see three pillars with more light behind the middle pillar. Can we see right. this? We'll leave that there. Unfortunately, places. we are almost completely out of time tonight. And as it turns out, I put in the clip of the wrong video anyway, so I suppose everything works out. That was another video by the YouTube user Sea Lion talking about 9-11, the 9-11 Pyramid Mega Ritual, which is also interesting but is highly visual, so not really appropriate for radio. But there's also the 9-11 Stargate, which was, I think, the first video of Sea Lions that I ever saw that, again... No matter what you think of it, it will have you Googling various random factoids from all over the, uh, the history of the ancient world to modern pop culture and seeing how they connect in with 9-11. It's, uh, it's a bizarre and wild ride that's at least an in- interesting, uh, worth, worth your look for 10 minutes of time. So I'll put the links to both of those videos in the show notes for tonight's episode, again, available at CorbettReport.com. And that's going to do it for tonight. Again, we've just taken a brief whirlwind tour through some of the weirdness that tends to add up when you've been doing this for a number of years. Again, no big definitive conclusions for tonight's episode. Just wanted to share some of those interesting stories with you. Well, that's going to do it for tonight. But tomorrow night, we're going to be back with a conversation with uh, Professor James Tracy talking about the truth in the academy and why... Uh, professors and people who are supposed to be devoting their academic uh, studies to, to to expanding the frontiers of human knowledge are so often unwilling to do exactly that. So I, I'm looking forward to that conversation. I hope you are too. That's going to do it for tonight. And uh, I want to thank everyone for tuning in for tonight's episode of Corporate Report Radio. So until tomorrow night, thank you all for listening and take care.